Hello, welcome to Circuit and Gear, a podcast where we discuss scenic automation and other interesting tech. I'm Gareth Connor. And I'm Steve Nath. Wait, what? Steve Nath? Where the hell is Mike Wade? Well, the funny thing is that uh, Mike's actually still around. He's just uh, busy. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's, He's a, a fucking busy plate. guy. Yeah, that guy. So Mike's uh, Mike is, is knee-deep in tons of uh, special projects and tech support and manual writing and all sorts of good things. Designing new products. Designing new products, absolutely. And uh, we were, Mike and I were just out at LDI in Vegas, and we were supposed to podcast out there, but I tell you, at the end of a long day on the trade show floor, there was not enough motivation left in the tank to, <laughs> <laughs> to actually sit down and be like, let's go talk in a... In a in a uh, small booth, let's talk at each other for a few hours instead of eating dinner since we haven't eaten all day. And that was uh, the end of that idea. So, so I thought it would, instead though, I thought it would be fun to get you on Steve and talk about a couple of things. One, like kind of introduce you to the, the podcasting audience. And then also, uh, because we were at LDI, we were showing off all the mini machines, the push stick mini and the spotlight mini. And the push stick mini is your baby, right? Like you designed that thing. Yeah, way yeah. back when <clears throat> my first well not my first child i guess my <laughs> one of my later mechanical child <laughs> yeah children. but a recent a recent mechanical a recent mechanical yeah, child absolutely and is now like an adolescence which we'll get to like it's oh been my through, gosh like, it, <laughs> it's changed it's it doesn't behave anymore it's got <laughs> exactly. its own ideas it's <laughs> exactly. hanging out with a tough crowd smoking cigarettes screw you dad yeah exactly <laughs> this is bullshit all right so steve i thought it would be fun to start off with like a well like hey where did Steve come from? What have you, uh, how did, I guess the first good question I have is, uh, what do you do here? That's actually a really great question. Um, I can talk about <laughs> it. Not a of, simple answer, right? No, not at all. I can talk about it sort of holistically and philosophically, but the, the easy answer about like, what is my official job title? I, I have a note to discuss that with you in the near future, actually. Um, yeah. So I was brought onto the team here at Creative Connors to begin to offload some of the product design work that had cluttered up Gareth's plate. I think that's really sort of the overall employment philosophy here is that back in the basement days, Gareth did everyone's job. Right. And so as we tool up and bring on more and more people, all we're doing is relieving Gareth of things that he doesn't entirely want to do or can't do in a given day. Right. right? And so uh, I was brought on to sort of take product ideas from concept to completion. Right. And so that, I probably did that about 35% of every day for the past three or so years. But um, it sort of moved a little bit. It's it's organic, like many positions here are. Uh, and it, I, uh, I have recently sort of transitioned into a position that legitimized a lot of the work I did, the other 65%, which was answering questions across uh, sort of the three pillars that support us, right? Across um, mechanical design, electrical design, and software design. So, yeah. Uh, so now I sort of handle that. I have a, uh, an operational twist going on too, where I'm working on all of our scheduling and keeping people uh, on task and feeding that. What do I do next, Hopper? Right. Um, yeah, because the funny thing is that you know you mentioned like the basement days, right? It's as we've grown, and we're still very small, but we've got 25ish people now, and then at least half of those folks in the shop here in Rhode Island. And there is an awful lot of, Hey, what do I do next? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it, 
And in the good months, like we have, you know, 12, 13 different jobs going on at any given time of varying sizes, you know, some very small, some quite large. And it's, uh, it's no longer like a, hey, just look at the calendar and everyone will naturally know what to do. Right. We, we have a very sort of flat organizational structure and it's, it's, for, it, it's sort of an artifact of us recruiting intelligent, independent, sort of self-motivated people but we're reaching the point now where that is adding overhead to people's days, where not only do they have to build the thing, they need to sort of keep an eye on the schedule and understand who's paid, who hasn't paid their invoices, pay your invoices, <laughs> uh, who's, you know, what material is coming in, what material are we missing? Um, and so the goal- And then also like kind of keep everybody else on the team informed, right? It's yeah. like this crazy web network of like, well, tell six people what you're doing mm -hmm. so that we can all feel like we're included. Right. Yeah. And then be ready to be on your toes because, uh, you know, there are whammies on the wheel, right? So right. sort of, you may get pulled to sort uh, spacers or something or, or <laughs> just receive the giant pile of stuff we got from McMaster today. Or right. Any number, any, take air conditioners out because it's winter and why do we still have the air conditioners and all sorts of fun things <laughs> like that. And so being able to sort of legitimize both the overhead tasks is a big thing that I do now. So sort of like shop projects or things that don't necessarily result in like a payable invoice, but definitely help us out. Repairing test gear, repackaging rentals, building shelves, all sorts of things like that. Being able to budget time toward them, I think yeah. is a big win. Uh, and I realize that we've turned circuit and gear into the like small business owner <laughs> podcast, which, <laughs> which is an interesting tack to take. Honestly, it's a good, it's a, it is a phenomenally large part of what we do, right? Like, make the machine that makes machines. Whoa. What? That was good. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, that's a good tagline. That's a good tagline for your book. Your next book. My next book. Yes, exactly. Dozens of dollars to be made authoring books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, so that sounds all very exciting and interesting and actually would it, I think there's a lot of topics in there to dig into in the, <laughs> in the future too but I don't want to get too bogged down in there because I think it'd be good to hear a little bit about your history too about where you sure. came from like like most folks well, I, I don't know if most folks anymore is right I, I think like it's still most is it still most okay yeah, yeah, yeah like most folks here we you have some theater in your blood I do I do absolutely so uh when I was in sixth grade my grandmother told me that I really ought to try out for the school play because I was very theatrical. Was I, that just because like you'd thrown a fit or something? Like you're you're, I, you're being dramatic, Stephen. I'm. You know what? It wasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As she as she swirled her. Take it on the stage. Yeah, right, please <laughs> take this show on the road. Um, no, I I don't under, I don't quite remember enough about who I was all those years ago. I assume it was probably something like doing funny voices or sure. not being athletic or something <laughs> like that, that they were like, Ugh, you gotta do something to entertain the, <laughs> up attain the upper class. Um, and so, so I- So was, sixth grade. So sixth grade, and I was in three productions, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade of the cute little packaged musicals that uh, the publishing houses will send out like oh, four, yeah. four kids that aren't, like we didn't even have enough money to do the like kids version of a known play. It was okay. like, uh, um, you know what? Uh, yeah, there's do you remember a, what they were. What so were one play? of them, the first one I was in, was called, and I'm I'm not kidding on this one. You ain't nothing but a werewolf, <laughs> which was oh that classic. Yeah, that exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's up for a Tony now. Uh, it involves a student at a high school, a 1960s high school, who turns into a werewolf and does like a sort of Elvis impersonation. What? 
That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a, it's a supernatural romance <laughs> a la Twilight. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah. But it was it a musical? Or it, a well, of course play? it was. A okay, musical. Yeah. What am I thinking? Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it's Elvis Presley. Yeah. yeah. Right. Elvis. Elvis. Elvis yeah. it's a, you could do a really like a gripping drama with a ridiculous premise like that. Like really <laughs> dig into what happens if Elvis were a werewolf. But they didn't. They took the easy way out and just yeah, made some song know, and dance right? numbers. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, just ridiculous, ridiculous premises. Great for taking pictures of your child singing and dancing. And so you were on stage for those. I was too? on stage for those. It was uh, like the dad carpentry crew level sets, right? Mm-hmm. Where it was mm-hmm. like you know what the the history teacher and some of the like school you know strapping gentlemen that followed around in the school built sets. Uh, yeah. I went to a vocational agriculture high school to oh. give you an idea. So okay, classes were interrupted by people like trying to catch escaped sheep driving tractors around the building and stuff like that <laughs> flies everywhere. It and was, this is Connecticut. This yeah. is Connecticut. This is yeah. Lebanon, Connecticut. Um, and so anyway, I digress. I did that for sixth, seventh and eighth grade. I went to high school in ninth grade and we did Bye Bye Birdie, which is a real play. Which is a real play. Yeah. Still yeah, a musical, yeah. but like one that you yeah. might've heard of. Yes. Uh, and then we ran out of arts funding. It was a passion project oh. from, uh, it was a passion project from like one teacher who, uh, taught one period out of the, you know, one period out of the day. So she got paid one seventh of a public school teacher's salary. Oh, which I think <laughs> actually brutal. after taxes and benefits, they send you a bill. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, right? So you actually need to pay us. Yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah. So from last semester. Yeah. And so she uh, kind of, it, it was disincentivized, certainly. Yeah, and so she that's stopped. a little grinding. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that was sort of it. And I resigned myself to being an office drone or something like that mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, and I went to college and I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta pay my way through this, through this beast here. I gotta keep my, you know, I gotta keep the, keep the bills low. And, and where was college for you? College was Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Gettysburg college. Okay. Uh, the mascot there is the bullet. Like from a gun. From a gun. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Gettysburg, I suppose. Uh, right. right? But, yeah. But it's interesting because all of the most of the firearms, I think, would be musket, musket right? right? Yeah. So it'd be it's like balls. Balls, yeah. Oh, you couldn't be the Gettysburg balls, though. <laughs> no, no, that wouldn't. That, that, yeah, yeah. The optics on that are rough. It's really bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I, yeah. So, um, I sort of I came in and I was like, all right, I want to be efficient. I want to like make money and do stuff. And so I was like, I'm going to take a Spanish course. Being multilingual is super great. Yeah, uh, I'd taken Spanish all through high school, all sorts of you know academic stuff like that. How is your Spanish? Uh, it's gotten worse over time. Okay. I can hold my own like in a Mexican restaurant and I just, you know, I can have a conversation like gun to my head, but I am, uh, I have learned cause my, uh, my sister-in-law is, um, is Dominican. And so sort of, I can apologies if she's not Dominican. <laughs> she probably doesn't listen. She, <laughs> she's not a big scenic automation <laughs> fan. Um, but so she, um, so you so, guys will talk sometimes? So we'll talk sometimes, but I have learned from her family member that my accent writes a check that my gringo ass can't cash. <laughs> and so I, like, again, the theater training was so much better than the Spanish as a spoiler to how the story goes. So I, uh, the Spanish class was full. I signed up for Theater 101 uh, instead to sort of like get that art credit out of the way on my way to make that, make those big bills, right? Right, right. Uh, and so the first day uh, at Gettysburg College, the theater building is a, uh, converted Civil War chapel. And so we just walked around the space and the professor who had been a student there in the 60s just told stories, 
mm. uh, and really engaged my engaged my imagination, if you can believe oh, yeah. a theater professional <laughs> doing that, right? <clears throat> right. And that just that sort of got me hooked a little bit, and so I did the class. And because the, the people are kind of great, right? The like people a, are spectacular, yes. honestly. Uh, and so I did the class, and part of the class was working in the scene shop. And I worked in the scene shop, and with my ability to use a cordless screwdriver and my ability to do basic trigonometry, I was quickly promoted to supervisor. Oh, nice. Right? And then I, I quickly learned also that the scene design professor, although a very sweet gentleman, didn't care to do any of the TD work. Okay. And so it was always a student. So you're kind of like the de facto TD at that yeah, point? being To some or, extent. Yeah. Like it rotated around. Okay. There was a there was an official position called the student technical director. Oh, okay. uh, again, optics the acronym for that's real bad, but um, or real good. You think about it, ever present right. affects your whole life. <laughs> Needs ointment. Needs ointment. <laughs> so, but yeah, so the role was sort of shared among the crew chiefs to just sort of keep like make the make the scene designers' dreams a reality. And so I, I did that for all four years, and then I sort of had come to a crossroads at the end of my senior year of college where I could either pursue a PhD in theoretical computer science, or on a whim, I googled theatrical engineering, and at that time, the only gig in town was an, was an unmaintained web page on Purdue University's uh, <laughs> domain about a program they had done like once. Or they had done occasionally, like on request. If okay. someone comes in with like an ABET accredited degree and wants to do like engineering, Purdue can give you a master's degree in engineering, specializing to some extent in theater. Okay. Their engineering offerings have like evolved yeah, since yeah, I yeah. have been there. But it, uh, so I emailed. But that's like the, that, that program mm-hmm. from other people's stories, right? Was, was kind of mothballed, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, it, exactly. So I sent that email and I received a note back from Rick Thomas, who was in, who was the contact there. And he says, yeah, we haven't done that in, in a right. while. Yeah. And he's like, I mean, we might have a pamphlet. On yeah, somewhere exactly. Or he's like, we it's it's not like a regularly offered thing, but we have the technical direction program. I don't yeah. pass you off to my colleague. Uh, and then that's how I got in contact with Rich Dion, who became my advisor. I'm right. a proud owner of a master's of fine art from Purdue University nice. specializing in Officially, I think it's a master's in fine art and theater with a spe- uh, with an unof- undocumented specialization in technical direction <laughs> right. and an even more undocumented concentration in controls design. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, because of how <laughs> universities <laughs> right. go, there's no there's, there's no body to yeah. give you a master's of fine art and technical direction. So, so hitting rewind for a second though, because yeah. you were like one of your choice path, one of your choices in that path was to go PhD for computer science. And then, so what did you actually come out of undergraduate with? So I left Gettysburg College with degrees in mathematics, theater arts, and then I picked up a minor in computer science along the way. That's that's pretty hardcore engineering background though, right? Right. I mean, you're primed for it. You can see where you were going. Yeah. That's exciting. So, and how did you find Purdue? Well, it was just the Google search. It oh, was sorry, how I mean, I, like, oh. how did you like Purdue? Oh, how did I? I yes, mm-hmm, yes it did way. wonders for my constitution. <laughs> I I really enjoyed it, and I think yeah. it was... Seems like a great program. I think it is really a spectacular program. I sort of lucked out a lot in my life that I sort of stumbled into these great opportunities that I found, like, a school with a, a background rich in, like, engineering rigor yeah. that would take me on with my limited skill set in my god-awful portfolio 
<laughs> I don't know what Rich was thinking. It must have been a slow year. Oh, yeah. So, you, I mean, you must have had a portfolio, though. I right? made one because I saw that that was needed. Because there was no, there was no URTA prep or anything like that, right? There was yeah. no... When you're a small liberal arts college in the middle of Pennsylvania, you don't, you don't prepare your students. Yeah, because guys were call. I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think uh, I've never heard of them as being a big theater school. They're not. Yeah. Again, it's yeah. a Civil War chapel. So you think about the Civil War and you think about chapels. The chapel know. size. Yeah. It's Roughly small. needed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, people were smaller back then. <laughs> it was very small. <laughs> right. but no, it's, after the Civil War. But it's yeah. a gorgeous historic space. There's like angel buttresses and stuff like that. And then they just like oh, hung wow. a grid and then told us we couldn't do anything to the space because it's a historic <laughs> building. <laughs> right, exactly. A tale many of you are probably familiar with <laughs> from your time working in other converted spaces. <laughs> right. Well, but so I had no, so somehow all of this happened, which was awesome. And it is a really spectacular program. Again, to reiterate, because they're a, about a quarter of the program is really just carte blanche to do whatever you're interested in. And if you're an oh, overachieving cool. loser like me, you'll take extra courses too. Yeah. Because that's all, it's all sort of covered in the tuition waiver more like it's all hand waved, like one okay. account pays the other sort of thing. So I was able to take extra courses. And so I was able to go into, you know, like a sit down in a fluid power lab and sit down with all the other mechanical engineering technology students in front of a good, this awesome like Vickers test station and learn yeah. how to like set up, maintain, design hydraulic systems and diagnose problems that happen to them. Like there's a lot of technology and a lot of money yeah. invested in these things because, yeah. you know, when you when you need someone to troubleshoot your skid steer. Right, right. Someone with a mechanical engineering technology degree from Purdue University, best around. Right. All of Indiana. Right. Take that, other colleges in <laughs> Indiana, <laughs> of which I learned there are several. <laughs> no, but Purdue has an, a fabulous reputation for engineering, so it's really, that's a great opportunity to have that uh, cross-pollination between the entertainment side and the engineering side. I know Rich has been really pushing hard on that idea in recent years to yeah, he, bulk that up. I was able to go to the SEEE -E -E, uh, symposium, symposium on engineering, engineering and entertainment education or something. I've already forgotten the acronym, which was a really great experience uh, for two reasons. One, to sort of reconnect with the academics of what's going on. And number two, to listen to a bunch of unsolicited feedback about creative Connors in our gear. Cause I was one of very few industry representatives there. And so people were like, Oh, what do you guys do? What do you guys look for? You know what you guys ought to do. So I was using Spike Mark. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah. Cool. It, yeah, it was great to, it's always good to sort of connect with people. Like I miss the convention circuit for that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then while you were at Purdue, you spent, you did like a summer at Utah, yep. right? Summer at Utah Shakes in 2013. Uh, and then 2014, I was, you were well, here. I should, you spoiled it. I was oh. going to back up. I had gone to USITT and I, uh, I had gotten a hot tip from Rich Dione that like, you know, who does a lot of like cool engineering controlsy stuff is this is my best friend, Gareth Connor. Right. Uh, and so I, a wide eyed ingenue walked up to him after his uh, presentation with another CCI or a future CCI employee, Ed Weingarten, yeah, yeah, yeah. whom I, who went to the same high school as I did. <laughs> it's a crazy small world. It is right? such a it is such a weird <laughs> world out there. Yeah, um, and so like I had. Worked, I remember that we had we did like a little interview in the hallway. Yeah. of USIC. I had right? I had walked up and I had said hi to Ed, who didn't remember me at all. Yeah. Um, and then I had said, you know, hi, my name is Steve, and I am, uh, you know, I'm getting my master's at Purdue, and I have a huge interest in like 
controls design and programming and things like that. And I'd love to pick your brain for a little bit. And you were like, okay, cool. Here's my cell phone number. Uh, and let's actually go step outside and just talk. And right. we did, we like sat down in this random convention center and I picked your brain for an hour or so. Uh, and then one, you know, one resume later, you uh, invited me up here to Rhode Island. Right. Yeah. And you spent that time. It was 2014. Yeah. 2014. So summer. it was Showstopper 3 Consulate. Consulate. Right. Uh, and you did the Beauty and the Beast. I did the Beauty and the Beast levitation rig controls design. Right. Uh, and then just all sorts of like building stage hands and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. fixing revolvers and stuff like that. All the, all the fun experiences you could, <laughs> you could uh, enter if you did the, the summer hire program here at. Yeah, Career right. Connors Incorporated. And that was the mad dash to do. Oh, the Eminem and Rihanna list? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <sighs> that was a busy summer. That was. It, well, and it was great because it was so varied. Yeah. That it was, you know, it was sort of everything you could hope for in terms of like, what does it look like to actually do this professionally? Right. You know, some late nights, some early mornings, some mad dashes across Massachusetts <laughs> after. Uh, <laughs> after <laughs> that was after my nephew had. Poured diesel into the, the DEF DM. port on the truck. <laughs> yeah. For yep. those of you playing along at home, that's terrible. And if he had started it, he would have started melting. <laughs> yeah. What was impressive though is they filled the whole tank, and it was like, yeah, it wasn't easy to get that nozzle in there because the nozzles are different sizes. That's right. To try to, to, keep, <laughs> to try to keep people from doing it. Not not no, Bill Connor not be, though. No, he's not going to be deterred by something no. like that. <laughs> I didn't jury rig a funnel, but I got it. <laughs> I just squirted it into my, my mouth. mouth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like a mama bird. Yeah. <laughs> Drink up, little budget truck. <laughs> and he got through all of that and then was like, you know, maybe that wasn't right. Which was good that he thought of it then. But boy, it would have been better if he thought of it like 10 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. All right. And then, oh, yeah, yeah. So we had, and then after... After you graduated from Purdue, you actually spent some time in Pennsylvania. I did. I went back to Pennsylvania. It's sort of like a recursive thing, right? So I started in Connecticut, <laughs> went to Pennsylvania, right. went to Indiana, back to Pennsylvania, back here, spoiler alert. But so I worked for uh, a little company called Tate Towers Manufacturing. I haven't heard of them before. They do, they do stuff in this business? Or? Yeah. Well, uh, kind of like adjacent. They do, you know, like chorus risers <laughs> and, you know. They're big in soft Sprung goods. floors. They're yeah. huge in soft goods. Yeah. Shout out to shout out to Kat and Lisa in the soft goods department if right. you're listening <laughs> <laughs> but so you were at tate for a year and a half yeah just about a year and a half um and then i sort of sought greener pastures uh yeah. as the situation sort of changed there in Lidditz, and i reached back out to my good buddy gareth connor who rudely heartbreakingly turned me down in 2015 when i wanted to work here to begin That's with right. i did but i mean i got you back with the like <laughs> The stutter step to come join you. So I think well, 2015 was kind of a dark time at Creative Connors, too. We it was lost. the dark ages yeah, of Creative Connors. We almost yeah. lost all of our rich tradition. People we were really burning did. libraries and stuff. It was terrible. It was pretty bad. It was, yeah, there was slim pickings around here in 2015, at least for like a tragic like four months. That's when we lost Cody Green, who's luckily back with us now as well. But like we had to let Cody Green go, and he went to Hudson, which took years to get him back after that. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tom Batista, who's now at Schneider. Which is good for Tom, but oh Tom, oh, Tom, Tom. Tom. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. But then, but because that was then twenty sixteen when you reached back out. When it was yeah, so it was twenty sixteen was the oh no it like was when did you come back on board? Was I came back officially in twenty sixteen. Yeah. I reached out like early twenty sixteen and was like, hey, what do you think about me coming back? And you're like, 
hell yeah. And I was like, never mind. (laughs) Thanks for this email that I can show to HR. I can leverage up to more money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But turns out, well, I mean, you, you know, you took it with professionalism and grace that you're known for. uh, And it just, it it ended up not, you know, it turns out a little bit of extra money and a little bit of extra responsibility didn't, didn't sate my deep hunger to really like be more of use in the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so you came back in the summer, as I recall, mm-hmm. of, of 2016, and you've been here ever since. And as you said, like evolving your position as you go, as, as so many people do. Um, which brings us to tonight's topic, the main topic, the main, the featured event, 25 minutes. 25 in. But that, minutes that was a good, that was a good bit of storytelling. So, but let's get to the push stick mini, because this is the thing I just wanted to, to touch on to reiterate because of the, the fact that we're, we, are showing them off so much at the trade shows right now and in our marketing material and so on. And I think the story of the push stick mini is, is one to be told again, because it's, it goes back a ways, right? I mean, we, we'd had in some ways, this goes all the way back to the curtain call of like the 2012 ish era, right? Which was like the small, the small winch that is compact enough to be hung on a line set and operate a traveler track. And then, conceptually as as everyone as i like to make fun of the curtain call and everyone likes to make fun of me for making fun of the curtain call for the curtain call is my least favorite machine partially because it was never a huge seller and partially because it was a friction loop machine and so under high load it would totally slip right hope you didn't want to position that (laughs) yeah which was like fine on some you know on some soft goods and stuff but got really tricky when you're you know like don't put an led wall on that thing right and everyone wants hard scenery these days they're no longer no longer satisfied with a yeah just soft goods so yeah and so we had this idea we'd been kicking around this idea like let's let's a get rid of the curtain call and let's make a new winch that could be like that and then B, could that also, and this was my second insertion into the design philosophy of the push stick mini was like, I'd also love it to be like a deck winch too, because I've got a passion for deck winches. But the um, it seemed like it could be just a good all-around winch, right? It could be both things. You and I talk about these, these sorts <laughs> of ideas all the time. But of course, like ideas without money or time end up being, you know, just, just ideas. Just that, ideas, yeah. <laughs> just conversation pieces. <laughs> And so in, I think it was summer-ish of 2018 that we got um, the gig for ESPN for their second Seaport studio down in New York. And they needed to have a couple of traveler tracks uh, moving LED walls around. And then they also had a couple of monitors that were going to fly mm-hmm. as well. And you and I started talking, we're like, oh, this, is, this could be it. Right, the idea that sort of making at least like a unified powertrain a thing where you could order it in two different flavors, kind of the Taco Bell mentality. They're like, yeah, okay, cool. You're going to get a sprinkling of zero fleet. You're going to get a drum with some grooves in it. And you're going to get a motor that spins it. And then if it, you know, if we do like traveling fair lead in one configuration and then we switch the fair lead for another one, like who, who's to, you know, who's right. to say? Right, because it could do roll on, roll off, or it could just be double pick. Or, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, and so we... We noodled on that idea for a little while, and we sort of came to a real stumbling block in terms of, well, how do you make a, a like a like a, a fair lead 
right? Sort of like a moving pulley assembly. This is the moving pulley style out of right. versus book. Yeah, yeah, versus like the moving carriage style of, of the, the book V2. V2. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea being, right, when you do something like that with the moving carriage, you sort of need a bigger operating envelope and you need, and you bleed out more of your power when you're lifting the carriage, potentially like with the motor in it. Yeah. So a lot of mass is moving that way. So, And then you also need like, you need significantly more height. Right. Right. And the, right. Yeah. To allow that whole To allow that big, yeah. So we, we settled on the sort of moving Fairlead, but then the idea became, well, the Fairlead has to look different if you're doing a, like a push-pull winch versus uh, like two pick lines. Yeah. And, right. And just, uh, again, I would refer you to the lovely text by Alan Hendrickson on what those two sort of basic concepts look like. But the uh, what it came down to was, well, if we could make like an origami Fairlead or something. Right. How would we make it structural enough to let our third-party engineering review sign off on using that for a vertical application? And we kind of lost our appetite at that point because, right, it it was yeah. tricky. Uh, like we, uh, yeah, we noodled over some different concepts, but they all looked kind of finicky right, to make, it, yeah. and then probably finicky to actually operate in the field and get it securely. Exactly, especially if we wanted it to be one machine that could do both, having a user reconfigure it with like hitch pins and a dream and then stand proudly <laughs> behind ambition, that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like yeah. what there there's there are a lot of like there's a lot of things to make your gut clench at right. that moment. And so we thought, well, let's just make one machine that does the one thing the well. one thing well. Yeah. Rather than mountain that's kind of a crappy deck winch and a travel truck winch and also a slightly crappy hoist. Yeah. Let's just make a really awesome lateral winch for deck moves and traveler moves. Yeah, and I mean I think I think we did that. I think by the end of it we got there. Yeah. But the journey certainly had its bumps and bruises. It certainly did. <laughs> like in the end like the one that we're showing today is very nice. Yeah. And it, and actually even the first iterations were pretty nice, but there were some bun, some, some bumps and bruises along the way, right? Like so one of the things that we struggled with was the fairly design, right? Yeah. And so the circling back to it a little bit, we uh as is a joke in both conversations with Gareth on this podcast, uh, we make we make sturdy machines, real real big boy hefty <laughs> machines sometimes. Me too. And we thought, well, let's let's come at it the other way. Let's think. Let's have a bigger emphasis on lower weight, potentially lower cost, and sort of just make the sort of minimum viable product to to like hold itself together and pull on these ropes with enough force to move these panels back and forth. And that low weight being key, because we were talking about a thing that... Exactly, that you can then invert and attach to your yeah, batten. Like, yeah. you don't want it to be 350 pounds. Right. If you want to sell it as something that you can put on a batten, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, we... Um, so, we... Bumping, we shaved it really thin. We like. <laughs> We absolutely did. And so, one of the big cost-cutting measures, the one that really stood out to me, was we we thought about it and we're like, well, we need some sort of linear guidance for these for these pulleys, for the Fairlead. Yeah, and we ended up saying, well, you know, like THK rail or like a profile rail style is like heavy. It's expensive. It's kind of finicky, and it's what we've always done. Yeah, right. Exactly. And we we like your favorite bands that have been around for more than five years needed to change things up a little (laughs) bit to keep our fans, uh, or at least to please our record label. And so we were like, you know, what's really inexpensive? Those recirculating ball bearing like ride on a shaft style linear right. guides. Let's try those out. Right. And we learned a few things really quickly about those. Uh, the first being that you need 
you can't just use good old fashioned rotary <laughs> motion shafts for that. You need a more thoroughly hardened shaft or the preload from the ball bearings will just gouge it. Yes. And so we learned, we sort of assembled one of them. And then after a, just a few minutes of motion, it had begun to carve channels and sprinkle beautiful, shiny chrome <laughs> dust everywhere. Um, in addition to uh, the carriage, the, the fair lead carriage deflecting pretty significantly, because you think about this, you have right inside, inside your winch, you have sort of equal and opposing forces, but on opposite sides of a three-dimensional object, that kind of makes it whole, like parallelogram, right? right. It just wants to twist. It just wants thing. to twist. Yeah. One side wants to go up, one, one side wants to go down, down, and you need enough meat there to resolve that force, or you just start making organic shapes. And so I, I liken it to sort of like belly dancing. So as this fair lead carriage moved up and down, right, it was it, it kind of had a little, <laughs> had little, a little, shimmy, little to shimmy to it, yeah. Yeah, a little soul to that motion. And so it, uh, it so much so that we, we couldn't possibly, like we, oh, we can't, <laughs> We're like, oh my God, we can't that's do terrible. this, that's, that's yeah. terrible. And so we went through a couple of concepts to try and uh, make it better. And we were like, all right, all right, all right, cool, cool, cool. One shaft was a terrible idea. We can't possibly do that, which makes a decent amount of sense. Anytime you have one point, you're gonna get all sorts of pivoting. So we're like, cool, three shafts. Right. Three shafts, now they're hardened. This time, this time with feeling. Well, I think it was like two shafts that were hardened holding the bearings, right? And then a third shaft out in front of them kind of making a triangle to kind of <laughs> hold the whole carriage together. Well, that was where we we had gone. I think the steps Or did went, we start with- We the, started okay. with three half-inch shafts. Okay. And then we were just bending them. Yeah. Like, like we stiffened, that arrangement stiffened it and then made the shafts have to take and deal with the load. And so they just started bending because they're like- 24 or 28 inches yeah, or so long in between supports yep. exactly and so yep. when you're in the middle there that twisting just pretzels them up exactly yeah. exactly exactly it would like rock back and forth <laughs> and twist and it was who it was fun to look at but not fun if you were gonna you know present that to like a major client <laughs> especially one that's owned by a particularly large angry mouse yeah uh, and so we did that and then we we're like all right well we got to upsize the shafts and so we upsized and we did two three-quarter inch shafts and that was much better but then we were deflecting the whole frame again as the load. The load has to <laughs> exit the machine entirely. <laughs> and so we found every weak component along the way. And then that brings you to the note that you had that we added one more shaft that was uh, decorative in as much as it was, there was no, there was no linear guidance, guidance to it. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it helped reinforce that sort of trying. It brought back the triangle of strength that held everything together. Uh, and then we ended up with a functional product, like a, a, a working product that is on display. Well, I think today. though, like we ended up there, but then we oh, sent it, no. we sent that down to the site, right? I blocked this part out. Yeah, <laughs> we sent it down and Mike and Harry and man, somebody else at that point. Cody? I don't think it was Cody yet though. Maybe, could have been. But I, don't, I, remember, I remember Mike and Harry. I yeah, it was definitely at least Mike and Harry and Mike and Harry were down there and Mike calls me and he's like, look, these things are, you know, it was... Once we jack up the tension on the tensioner on this thing, you know, it's starting to look a little spongy. This, like the frame is looking soft. And, um, and we talked about it for like a good four minutes. And I, and I said, well, if it, if it really looks that shitty, like just send them back. Like we have to just take them back and make them stronger. If that's, if that thing is deflecting that badly. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and he called me back in a few, a few minutes later and was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I tried a couple other things and yeah, I'm just gonna send these back to the shop. I'm like, yep, 
send them back, send them back. And so they came back up here and we did a whole bunch of reinforcement on that tensioner assembly where you, which was mostly just about adding in more metal, like adding in more metal yep. and stiffener ribs and so on. Um, and then, and then that ended up being, now we had like the fair lead was stiff. The, mm -hmm. the tensioner was stiff. The frame was stiff. Like the whole thing was, um, pretty good at that point. It, it was totally functional and it, uh, it had an advantage that the current push stick mini doesn't have, which was that, uh, the super complex geometry going on inside it of like angling the pulleys and things like that. So yeah, because we didn't actually explain that. Like the one of the early criteria that was probably like a a decree that I made. I would imagine that's usually where these things start off from. Was like we got to try to keep the same exit distance to match up with all of our existing deck hardware, right? Yep. And so to do that on the Fairlight Fairlead, we basically made like a in plan view a trapezoidal Fairlead and kick the skit the uh the two fairly pulleys so that they're tangent to the drum and coming off at an angle to, so we got like an eight inch drum but we got to come up with a five inch exit yep. or something yep. like that right and so we worked on all that geometry <clears throat> and that that worked real nice but we after that we're like well never again <laughs> we'll just add a mule what were we thinking <laughs> yeah, like why why was that so important <laughs> yeah yeah because well because exactly in that particular situation we didn't even interface with stock deck hardware <laughs> right we ended up doing all custom pulleys all custom anyway. pulleys so yeah. Yeah. yeah it didn't make sense yeah it was it was a beautiful and it was like so much of that as we were looking at well you can speak to this better but like as we started trying to figure out like how do how do we make this a a easier structure mm -hmm. in the future like make it strong but let's not make it hard to make it strong um like kick the pulleys out to the sides of the frame keep them in line yeah. with the basically in line coming straight off the drum and then we can use the the mass of the frame to actually help out with the fairly exactly. yeah and then that's what we that's exactly what we did so we sort of sent the pulleys out and then that way that their their push pull action is going right to the giant metal frame side plates and we use some of our beloved igus bearings which right. follow one of my personal crusades against oily gross things i think it's like the ocd <laughs> but like the push stick mini is a great example of this because very few parts of it are externally lubricated right we're almost we're almost at a zero lube design yeah except for the lead screw, except right? for the lead screw because i couldn't i can't I, we couldn't use like a like Classic. a polymer yeah, yeah. Nut there. That's just not. That wouldn't. That wouldn't last very long at all. <laughs> we have enough. You know, we have enough things on the push stick mini that were like weak enough to begin breaking. That right. uh, we eventually. We. I think we came to the same conclusion. But those linear bearings. Sorry, just. To, oh yeah. Because those are those are really nice. Those are the low profile like double rod um, mm -hmm. linear bearings that we also use on the revolver, the revolver. V2. Yeah, and which, many custom projects too. Yeah, because they're inexpensive relatively mm -hmm. i mean compared to like the carbon. again to like thk rail or anything like that yeah absolutely yeah. uh and they're i don't know if they're i don't think they're manufactured but they are stocked in east providence in the igus headquarters so right right little, around the corner little, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> supporting rhode island businesses right sorry yeah that was a those are those are great little bearing though and they're super low profile it's, and, and again they're dry running on a on like an anodized a hard anodized aluminum a rail that they manufacture, super lightweight. Um, and again, really just anytime, especially with soft goods or anything like that, the minimizing the amount of like grease, oil, or like chain teeth flying around is probably a decent, it's a decent criteria to have. I don't think. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, the other thing that 
I think that's good from the like the dirt and grime perspective. Mm-hmm. But then like stepping back to like the Pushtig V1, the most Soviet winch we ever made, that one of my things on that design was get rid of any chains or anything that requires maintenance. Yeah, so no, like, that's a really good point. Uh, we did the like for the Jesus Christ Superstar lift, mm-hmm. right when we had two chain loops, one on each side of this giant like erecting mast thing, right? We yeah. called it the we called it the Christopult. Right. Right. Um, we had two chain loops. And so normally, like hearkening back to my Tate days, you would you would like talk to the manufacturer and get like matched lengths of chain because chain has tolerance for its overall length. And if you don't have that length like actually phased actually in. phased in, yeah. you just end up with one stiff chain, one slack chain. Yeah. And then things like safety factors begin to come into play there that like, your safety factor is much lower if a single chain is doing it and the other chain is just kind of like, I Long can't for wait the for the shock load. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we didn't have that advantage there. And it became like a very delicate dance of like, well, we got to, you know, we got to maneuver this a little bit and rely on the compliance and the bearings to kind of get us matched up and ready to go. Uh, but yeah, exactly. Use things that are user serviceable is a good point because a lot of the brain power in the transition to a production machine was thinking about serviceability. How are users going to reeve this? What are the use cases people will actually arrive at with this particular thing? And so we we came up with cool things like how do we mount this to a batten? How do we mount this to say triple E track? Do we want it to go to like Cargo XL? Like what is what is a universal-ish mounting solution? Yeah. And then we had to do new deck hardware for it. Or well not well, I guess new traveler track hardware. New traveler track hardware. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then the other um Another big advantage once we split that fairly to part was then we had independently adjustable pulleys, which we didn't have on the first go round too, right? Absolutely. So that you could, so you, because on the first one you had to do just like we do on the push deck V2, which is just spool the whole drum with mm-hmm. cable. And then once you split the pulleys onto their own independent uh, mm-hmm. bearings, they each had a nut and then you can adjust the nuts and adjust yeah. how much gap on the drum you have. And so, yeah, exactly. They have a nice flange on them now, and you can spin that flange, and for every rotation of that flange, you move one wrap guaranteed on the drum, right? Because you can imagine the drum and the fair lead should move sort of linearly at the same rate, or it won't. (laughs) Otherwise, it's going to be be very sad. (laughs) We didn't just guess. It's about right. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it'll be fine. Cable's flexy. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other big change, like at least coming out of that, initial ESPN version into the production one. Yeah. Oh, or are you going to talk about smart machines? Yes. Yeah. So on the ESPN versions, we manufacture like an off-menu product called the Stagehand Servo uh, that right. we don't particularly... We don't advertise. We don't advertise partly because uh, the joy of the Stagehand is that you could, in theory, put any AC induction motor on the other right. end of it. does not really matter. Uh, but... With servos, there are servo manu- servo amplifier manufacturers that make sort of like general purpose amplifiers. Right. But you have to sort of match their encoder specs and match the sort of power specs of the motor. And then a lot of those general purpose motors have very different performances at different voltages and different, ugh. Yeah. So we normally go with matched pair style things. So yeah. like You're going to buy the amp, you're going to buy the motor from the same manufacturer. Then yeah. all the cables fit together, which is nice too. Yeah. That like both ends are mm-hmm. terminated. You don't have to figure out what 
magic esoteric you know connector is at each end uh and so as a result like the stitian servo isn't really so general general purpose like usually you have to buy the mitsubishi motor to go with exactly usually you do you have to you (laughs) absolutely we we have done it a couple of times for people that are building their own machine and we just tell them all right cool you need to put this motor in it right and that's not awful but it doesn't it doesn't really fit with our design ethos right and so it uh, so what we wanted to do for this, because it was servo powered and everything was sort of light and small, like you can look at a comparable sized uh, AC induction motor drive and then the servo drive. And like the servo drive is about the size of um, like uh, a little bit smaller than the backstage handbook. Yeah. Uh, and then an AC induction motor is kind of the size of like a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Right. Like a nice yeah. rustic loaf, but still. <laughs> right. Right. And so like we can shrink everything and so we managed to take the all of the smarts and all of the guts electronically of the servo drive and put it inside the geometry of the winch yeah to make was that our second smart machine at that point behind the spotline practical right because the practical was the first mm-hmm. yeah yep yep that's right uh and so yeah the card is on board and so you would just run input power network if you wanted it and, and uh, stop yeah and input power is 110 volts which was another big design criteria starting off was like, we wanted to make this thing wall powered. And it, it it is spectacular. Like it's for really, Oh my gosh. Right. (laughs) And because servos have such a great uh, startup torque, like their ability to maintain a very high level of torque for like 10 or 60 seconds, even depending on the manufacturer is great. Cause this, you know, this tiny 400 watt servo can pull 2,700 pounds of scenery. No problem because it, gets it started and then it's on casters right and then away you go yeah so. and then backing up one step again to back to the like low maintenance no grease yeah. thing i got uh sidetracked on on that but the other thing that is has no grease right is there's no chain on it there's like no chain it, it's all belt it's all oh, <laughs> you're gonna trap me in a belt discussion <laughs> yep i i am the belt evangelist here at creative you are. Yeah. Uh, i love me uh, some like polymer reinforced or like aramid reinforced or carbon fiber reinforced timing belts. Um, and I understand that there are some downsides to them. If we want to get into the belt chat, we can get into the belt <laughs> chat. But specifically on the it push. It works very well on the push stick mini. On the yeah, push stick yeah. mini, uh, we're able to. And they're to, all Gates belts? They're all Gates brand belts. Um, little product placement there, a little <laughs> hashtag Gates. Look them up on Instagram. They're not sponsors yeah. yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If you want to include a commercial message in the next episode of Circuit and Gear, uh, please address a check for $150 American to Gareth Connor. That's right. But yeah, so you're all belt on I, the... Yeah, again, I think part of it is just like an OCD thing about not having exposed greasy objects to just collect stage dust. Sure. And, you know, go to heck, right? Especially in the Pushtick Mini, because those belts that drive all the two different stages, right? They're sort of motor to drum and then drum to the fair leads to keep them locked together. Those are in very tight quarters. And so the ability to sort of set those belts in place, confirm that they're properly tensioned through the fancy like ultrasonic tensioning tool right. that Gates supplied, um, and then leave them there potentially forever for the sort of duty cycle we're looking at they can kind of go in there forever or until something goes wrong like if you drop it like if you crash (laughs) the baton you'll (laughs) will want to take a look at it 
Right. But under normal circumstances, it'll just go. And Gates stands by their products for every, like they are certified for use in every application except literally like airplane control surfaces. So pretty high standards of quality. Yeah. Um, and they, they, they have no, um, no hesitation about sort of like a vertical lifting application being powered by them either. Yeah. So they, uh, th we definitely have some misgivings here at Creative Connors for good reason about situations where belts have a propensity to sort of slip through their teeth and things like that. Uh, whereas like the failure mode of chain is like at through, you know, five times the recommended load, it might explode spectacularly. But other than that, it's going to go. The chain yeah. can be old. The sprocket can be old. Your, like, your tensioning can be a little off. Yeah, right? your tensioning can be off and everything's right. still going to go. Yeah. Um, and that's always been my the reason why I think honestly, the reason why I am such a fan of chain is just because I'm not as thorough and fastidious about sizing things. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the, I almost always get my freaking belt sizing a little wrong and don't end up with like enough tensioner take up or something and then end up like, ah, I should just use chain because oh, I can just pop a link out. You want to know a secret? Probably. They're, maybe. They're, they're like Gates just has a program that does it for me. <laughs> it prints out a report and it goes so far as to tell me how far inboard I need to move the pulley uh -huh. to allow the belt to come off easily. Nice. I learned about that feature today. Wow, that's pretty good. But I but yeah. So and that's like, like on their website or is that no, like a I downloadable think it, I had to application? Like, I had to like um my so my daughter's soul was actually owned by the Gates Corporation, <laughs> but I managed to get their commissioning software, and so that is pretty useful. That's for, cool. Uh, they can do. I mean, they don't do the, like for their tensioning calculator. It only does like the slide, the idler pulley style. Okay. So like in the Pushstick Mini, there is the like perpendicular. Yeah, push it in from the side. Yeah, that one I had to do. I had to go into CAD and like do math and stuff and use yeah. that degree, but. But that's why you got that degree. Right, exactly. Like. And then, again, you can use backside idlers on Gates belts. So, what? So, it, yeah. Yeah. And it's great because they can you can sort of set them in, forget them, and tuck them out of the way. Sure. Whereas, like, wire rope and chain and things like that, like, have part of their implementation, and exactly. Yeah. You have, have to, to be, be able to inspect them. Yeah. And you have to lubricate them. And no one, I don't know of anyone does that <laughs> no, that is i mean judging by the like the revolver chains that we see come, come through the shop that, yeah that is the other half of it is that you get people well because it, it becomes like a you know sort of like the three tds in a room four solutions answer about like well nah it's gotta be you gotta be able to bounce a dime off your chain <laughs> and then there are people like no way chain is you gotta be you gotta go with the flow with the chain just let it's you gotta, know like the gotta let, be a little slack man yeah let the teeth do what they want like yeah. the chain on my bike is super has a big <laughs> the belly chain to on it. my bike yes yep mm -hmm. yep yep so what other things so the, that was like the so we went from the I'll call like the, the working prototype models at ESPN. And then we had the first production models, right? Was there another big change there in that step that we haven't talked about? I think that, you know, the two major changes were the fair, the new fair late arrangement yep. and the, and making it a smart machine. Yeah. Yeah. And then we ran with that for a bit and had great success. They're, wildly popular machines like people love them we love them like they can't keep them on the shelf <laughs> right like we like right now we have you know the next round is coming to us from our water jet vendor right to then be prepped and turned around to be sent to anodizing to get turned into units to get sold like it they 
they go. They just go. They go yeah. as pretty much as fast as we have the stomach to make more of them. And to the point, I think I just stepped all over. We internally, when we're approached about like rental gigs or special eff- or like custom effects, we'll spec these. Yes. Because the 120 volt power is so tasty. Right. You don't think about it necessarily, but there are so many more 120 volt circuits in <laughs> any building anywhere. Any building. Even, a t- even TV studios, even theater spaces. Right. You can get 120. Right almost anywhere with limited hassle and headache even just you know. and they're light and they're small like they're yeah, yeah they're like Talk you're up. like yeah i can just grab one of those myself and take it to the site yeah exactly like you grab one put it on a dolly push it right into position hop it off the dolly right drive a couple of lags into the ground yeah. through the including mount included mounting brackets <clears throat> Bob yeah. Frankel. yeah no they're really nice and one of the things i love about product development well no yeah, yeah i guess one of but it's probably my favorite thing about product development is the fact that you kind of never stop working on it, right? That you, like you do that first iteration, then you sand the rough, rough edges off and then you do another iteration and then you see like, oh, and that thing still sucks or that sucks or we want to make that a little bit better or wouldn't it be cool if, right? And so then we went to the the next, what we've been calling the V1.1. So we had kind of like the beta model, the 1.0 and then the 1.1. Mm-hmm. And what were the big changes that we hit on 1.1? The 1.1, uh, First off, brings a bunch of small quality of life changes that you probably won't notice um, until until you suddenly notice them and are thrilled. Like we learned that on the bottommost redirect shivs inside the body of the Pushtick Mini, the geometry worked out that trying to send the cable up along that shiv was very uncomfortable, especially if you had already like lagged the Pushtick down. Right. It's not hard. Pro tip, if you're able to just tip it back. Right. And then you can you can you can reeve it with ease. But if it's already down, there's no good way to do it. So we, for example, replaced one of those socketed cap screws with a brass thumb screw right. for visibility and for ease of turning. So you can just pop a keeper out and go that way. Feed it past, reeve it back through, put it back in. Um but then we also learning from the spotline mini development, we thought, well, our cable keepers are kind of loud. And just kind of complicated, unnecessarily right. complicated. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, like some, I bet someone does this better. And so we reached out to a conveyor roller manufacturer. And now the keeper rollers on that device are, they are, uh, they're still, they're nice and spring loaded, but they're now conveyor rollers with a beautiful orange, orange urethane <laughs> coating. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It is, it, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a literal like raw color match to the Creative Connors <laughs> official orange. You should see They look them. pretty sharp. Yeah. And then it's, so like that's from a manufacturing perspective, mm-hmm. but it certainly helps in the long run too. Uh, that like we went from a part that used to be a fair amount of machining to make mm-hmm. that was a little crappier to one that is just a bought part that is. It's just a bought part better. and it ends up being quieter quieter yeah uh and it does a better job yeah and then let me let's get really into it the cable holding (gasps) solution oh the cable holding solution is oh yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah yeah so on the on the pushstick mini v 1.0 which i think was a pretty which was a decent win we had external cable keepers yes and so it's just a little which was a huge win right which is a huge win rather than having to like fuss inside the drum so like you have a you know, when you go to terminate the cable into the drum, you've got a hole there. And like our many of our other 
earlier products, you fish the cable through the hole and then you have to drag the end of the cable over to the spoke, which is the part that, you know, engages the shaft. And there'd usually be a clamp on that, on that, uh, spoke. And so you kind of fish the cable through that clamp and you screw down the two screw, two clamping screws holding that clamp uh, mm-hmm. to the spoke, which all sounds really good, except that like this has all happening in a space that is just about wide enough to fit the meat of your palm in. And so you're kind of doing it by braille. Mm-hmm. And then we all have these little ratcheting screwdrivers from Wera that you use to ratchet out the, uh, the cap screws. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it is fiddly to say the, to be generous about yeah. it. Cause then once you get good at it on the top side of the drum, you get to go to the bottom side of the drum where there's no visibility. Yes. Yeah. And that's really, yeah. That's, that's where you where, earn your stripes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's where we separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and then, so we added external cable keepers on the V one on the V one. Right. And so you feed the cable through and it's just a nice little sort of hook shaped thing into a tapped hole. Clamp so the, it down. So the clamp is now on the surface of the drum rather than mm-hmm. inside the drum on the spoke. Yeah. Right. So you can pass into the body of the drum still, but then on the outside, right in front of that pass-through hole in the groove is a now little hook that you tighten down. It crunches the, it doesn't like crunch and destroy the cable, but it adds an additional level of friction to the cable, <laughs> provided you have sufficient safety ramps. <laughs> right. It holds it there. And then it, when it's time to take the wire rope out, you, uh, you loosen that screw you can hook a finger in there or whatever, give it a yank, and you freed it. Yeah. Um, which was pretty good, but it did require a little bit of goofiness in the drum, or well, in the drum keeper interaction, because the keeper rollers then had to be inside of held those. inboard yeah. of those external cable keepers. So if you have, like, say, a, whatever, call it a 12 inch long drum, which is not the right size, but if it's a 12 inch long drum, then those first that first wrap that has the that clamp on it, you've got to be inside of that. So you're like, mm-hmm. call it an 11 inch cable keeper that you've got to go. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, and you don't want to get out of alignment ever. Otherwise you're going to start smacking the clamp. Right. And that was it was we had to run a shaft the whole length and then run precision machined UHMW to actually be the roller surface and then make our own shaft collars to go top and bottom to hold it in place. And each of those was like an artisanal, like, adjusted and held together situation. <laughs> right, right. So we thought, well, I bet we can do one better. And so we brought we brought it inside. We, so we sort of, we fused the two ideas. There's now a cable retention detail on the inside of the drum geometry accessible from a screw or manipulated by a screw accessible from the outside of the drum. So now you send the cable through the pass-through hole in the body of the drum and then there's now a screw hole that you would insert your favorite T-handled Allen key into. Preferably the right size. Or we're a ratcheting device yeah. from the Tool Check or Tool Check Plus line. <laughs> we're is not a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can visit our uh, subsidized Amazon store. <laughs> cool tools. Um, but And then so with a, with a mere twist, you're able to retain the cable. And Gareth, pray tell, how does that? work what's on the other side i don't know steve tell me tell me tell well, me is it a dowel nut <laughs> <laughs> i remember we said the word dowel nut so many times I've, it lost all meaning to but me. i don't think it actually is anymore right is it uh, is it it's i thought we we're just tapping in from the end of that of the drum now 
And it's oh, just, you're totally yeah, right. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it's we had, we did it. We had some. We had a whole bunch of different ideas, but the I think the end result was that we ended up just tapping the edge of the drum, and there is just a socket head cap screw now that threads into that tapped hole, and then that just tapped hole bottoms out into the hole of the that the right as cable the cable enters. is passing through there. Yeah, and, and it's like a super simple, yeah, elegant uh, right. cable clamp, and that's really a big win that came to us courtesy of uh the, the new haas mill right right like we with the added z travel we're able to now stand a drum on end and do that detail so right. similar to the uh spotline mini spoke concept did we right. talk about that yet we haven't talked about that yet on the uh, i mean we talked about it i don't know, actually i'm not even sure if we talked about it on the when we we're talking about the spotline mini we're gonna do a whole another deep dive on the spotline mini on a future episode too but the other big thing that we changed on these drums is that we've gone, we've done weldless drums for years because we don't like welding drums and, and they're all aluminum uh, construction. Previously you'd have, again, like we'll do with our magical 12 inch drum. You'd take a magical 12 inch drum. You'd come in an inch from either end, you'd mill a half inch slot and drop a piece of aluminum through that slot to capture that, um, spoke that you've just dropped through the slot you'd have what we call a keeper that would bolt on that it, to that um, spoke and that that would be the external di diameter of that is fits the id of the drum so once it bolts on it's captured can't come out of the drum and it's engaged in the slot and that's what actually transmits the rotational force um, to the drum and those are all really cool in the sense that it, it achieved like the totally weldless um, construction and it, we could do it all on the mill, et cetera. But they got, they were a little fussy <laughs> to say the least, right? Cause like the thickness of the material passing through that slot had to be milled so mm -hmm. that we could pass through the slot. And then they have a, naturally there's some amount of clearance there to allow that thing to pass through. And that ends up like rattling the drum. And so you, the drums get a little bit of rattle. And you end up having five parts because you got the drum, you got the two keepers, and the two spokes mm -hmm. that have to go through. And we had to sort of build the drum in phases. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yep, yep. So we have to Good start point. with a, a piece of aluminum tube, and then we have to uh, we have to sort of bore them to control the ID or the keeper ID. Oh, the keeper ID. Yep, yep, yep. And we have to group, we have to. Uh, sort of pocket in there, not pocket, we have to cut into them to put the spokes actually yep. in it. And we have to build this drum to then turn it, to true it up as best we can, concentric to the to the shaft hole that we've made in the keepers. And then we have to groove it all assembled, like all sort of pressed and the, together. And the like you're saying, right, like the, the groove actually gets cut through the edge of the spoke mm -hmm. that's now embedded in the drum and so right. those things when they come apart for anodizing have to be marked so they actually go back together so that you get the right spoke yes. with the right drum uh yeah and then the just all manner of uh like set screw tomfoolery as well right the yeah. long set screw right because we wanted to we have the spokes oriented smartly. We have the spokes oriented 90 degrees off each other. So you have one where the keyway on your shaft is perpendicular to the long axis, and one where it's parallel. So on one, you have a nice short set screw to press down on the key and everyone's friends. 
you go on the other side, you have, we have to have, <laughs> we have to drill through the, like the yeah, radius. It's like a four inch hole. Yeah. I have a four inch long hole. That is a four people. inch long hole that is then counterboard to yeah. accept a socket head cap screw all the way in there. And that is a little bit of a pain in the butt. <laughs> that does kind of To say suck. the least. It does kind of suck. And so with this new idea to take them all the way outboard, Yes. You yeah, so, so walk through what is the new idea. So that so was the way we used to do it. Was, how do we do it now? So the new idea, you start with your tube. Uh, the first thing you need to do is you just flip it on end and you machine a pocket right on the end of each tube. Right, imagine if you... Uh, it's imagine. like datoing it. Yeah, exactly. Like right. you're I was gonna, rabbiting the cut. Yeah, I was going to go right into carpentry. Yeah. Right. And then we make a nice little shouldered insert that sort of sits in there and acts as both the sort of spoke and the keeper detail, right? Like it right. has a shoulder to sort of orient it inside the ID of the tube and it has a nice, and then it ends up with a nice little sort of flange over top that goes in the fresh dado that you have made. Uh, we have some tapped holes in there, boom, boom, right? Yeah. And then that whole thing already, that does everything that like the first five steps I mentioned. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can already tell how much simpler it is. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. that, and then that goes in the lathe, it gets trued up real quick and then it gets grooved, but the grooving is inset some small amount so that you don't have to, you never have to groove over multiple parts. And right. I think if any of you own Creative Connors gear and take a look at a drum, you can sort of see what's gone on in there, that there's like this chamfered, spoke that is passed through the body of the drum and all of that like gareth said has to be sort of controlled to the best of our ability and there are times where we don't we don't knock it out of the park yeah and then we get either rattly drums or something like that and then there's the rework associated with that of like well is the hole is the slot too yeah. big or is the spoke or was wrong? the material oh, yeah. the like was the material on the on the low end of its tolerance today and we zeroed off the wrong surface or like right. It becomes like a big endeavor because there's a and there's a very real chance that sort of the part like if any of those parts don't work we have to kind of scrap the, it's easier almost to scrap the whole assembly yep. and get the you know get the 60 cents of the aluminum <laughs> and try again next time but with this with this newer plan there's no grooving there's no special sauce to make each like there's no thumbprint for each one right you can, because the spokes are totally ungrooved and all the grooving only happens on the tube on the, the drum body exactly yeah. and so then you also don't get any goofy situation where your grooving is slightly off due to that wiggle right right you have no place where the cable is allowed to kind of wander or hop out of its groove which is ugly like chatter which yeah. is ugly chatter exactly yeah. like we've it's nice you know and because we have that little smooth spot at the end of each drum that allows us to do this little detail of of, uh, of our new clamp screw of the sweet yeah perpendicular clamp screw yeah that is pretty nice and so we uh so the drums are improved on drums are improved keepers are improved the uh lower mules are improved what else is improved the shielding situation is improved mm. we uh we sort of went back and we, we took a, like in the cold light of day, took a look at our machine and we thought we could do a better job of discouraging people from sticking their hands inside of it. Mm. So we've added a couple of new shield mounting points and we sort of added a front shield, which is, you'll notice something different. We, the, the argument, uh, <laughs> the, the arguing, I should say, was loud and lengthy. Yes. We decided that. Although on the Pushstick V2, we leave the sort of quote unquote business end of the winch open, 
we weren't 100% satisfied with that. Just because we used to do it some way doesn't necessarily justify us continuing to do it. Right. And so we've now, you know, we sort of uh, hitched up our pants and we're like, well, let's let's guard all of the sides of the machine. Yep. And that is uh, that was partly due to Mike Wade's point that when we don't do that, about 50% of the time clients look at it and go, oh, that w- there's an open moving parts in here. We're, you guys need to guard that. And then we have to cobble something together out of right. like plywood and twin wall or whatever we have lying around on site. Yeah. Let's instead just make a product that like comes off the pallet and is ready to rock and roll rather than something that is like 90% there. But then like people right. are, you know, hand so- or like hot gluing pieces of twin wall onto it or yeah, and I think as both Mike and Cody pointed out that like oftentimes, especially in some of the TV studios, like these things are being installed down on the floor, like right at, you know, pants height. Yeah. And they're running as something that's, you know, moving LED walls back and forth. And if somebody steps in the way, like it's an easy thing to get sucked into. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. Sort of pinched between the two of them and you yeah. take one step to avoid it. And you're, yeah. It's now bad. you're losing your... Now you're losing at... At best, you're losing the fucking hem on your on your pants, and at worst, much more than that. Yeah, well, yeah, ter- yeah terrible. It's bad standard. stuff. So yeah, yeah, so we put a put a nice safety guard on. Exactly that. right for the cost of for mere pennies, <laughs> we are able to put a piece of Lexan <laughs> exactly. between you and danger for you, the customer. <laughs> <laughs> and then the um, the other thing that we tweaked was the tensioner, right? Like oh, the unibody yeah. tensioner. The unibody tensioner. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we again with the Haas vertical milling center that we now own, um, we do own, right? Oh yeah. Oh man, paid the last invoice, baby. <laughs> it's ours to break. Um, we took a look at our tensioner, which was a multi-part assembly, right? It had sort of had a body, it had some stiffening ribs, it had some little mounts in it to capture a shoulder bolt to be the kingpin. Which kind of goes back shift. to that first, you know, stiffening round that we yeah. did at ESPN. Like make this right. thing thicker to make it stiffer. Yeah, we bi- in cross section we built like a channel out yeah, of three yeah, yeah. pieces of water jet aluminum, uh, and that's cool and all. But we could instead just take a big honking like it's it's the joke idea that we often come out with like well we could just grab a hunk of billet and machine whatever <laughs> we want out of it. And then this time we we're like wait but we we could actually. But we we were all we were all jazzed up at the notion of the Haas. And so we kicked it over to the machine shop and we said, Hey, if we wanted to like remove a bunch of material from this piece of bar stock, like what does that look like in terms of time? And do we need special Cause we want tooling? the stiffness, but we're going to take most of that aluminum out of there just exactly. to make it light. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Brian, the, uh, the machine shop lead a with like a, a nefarious glint in his eye. Cause he got a brand, he has a brand new toy now. It's like, <laughs> Oh, we can definitely do it. And then we did the math. Like we ran the simulation and it's, you know, five minutes of cutting time to remove, you know, probably 60% of the material right. of that bar in this cool, like, you know, sort of like, not not quite honeycombed, but like yeah. seriously pocketed design with some cross holes and convenience holes and all of that stuff. And then, so we, we made one, we confirmed clearance. Oh, that's the other thing is there's the nice little, nice little linear guidance upgrade right. there with those, um, what do you call them? They're from the eighty twenty uh, bearing pads. I don't know what what else you'd call them, but they're but yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. And so the we now instead of uh, before, which was a I think it was a shoulder bolt in a slot and some aluminum, we now have some nice like wear resistant plastic pads that uh, fit into some nice little channels and guide the tensioner up and down, which is 
Which is sweet. It's another nice quality of life change right there, actually. It is. Yeah. Because, again, with the, you know, metal grinding on metal, anytime we can avoid that and do plastic, <laughs> like right. rasping against metal, <laughs> it's kind of an upgrade. It's definitely an upgrade. Oh, and we added um, the laser-marked tags. For the for the drum capacity, right? We again with the hot new technology with our laser, we added. We actually added. We have several tags in there. We do, yeah. Um, but I think one of the most immediately usable ones is just you can now, based on where you have where as you're adjusting the fair lead, you can see how much drum capacity that particular location gets you. So you yeah. sort of zero out the machine by moving one of the fair leads to the marked location. And then as you adjust the other one, it tells you, oh, if your fair lead starts here, you have 50 feet of capacity. But if you move it up here, you only have 30 feet of capacity or whatever. Yeah. No, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to have all those, uh, the markings on it. Yeah. No, oh, and we beefed up the lead screw, didn't we? And the lead screw. That was a huge improvement. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, going back to the drawing board, we beefed up that lead screw from half inch to three quarter to give yep. it. Uh, significantly more uh, make it make it sort of a butcher situation because the problem we encountered was sort of with the Acme thread pattern. The minor diameter gets so reedy, so delicate, so <laughs> Just gossamer. A thin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that we, that you can see deflection and you can see you know. Well, and also we, it was it was forcing us to do like a multi piece lead screw, right? Cause we were doing like lead screw coupler and then keyed a shaft. shaft stub, yeah. a shaft stub. And because we, there wasn't enough left on that shaft to turn down the end to just make it one machine to part. Mm -hmm. And we had some, we had several units where we were fighting failures on that coupling. Um, oh, absolutely. Right. Cause I, uh, someone, <laughs> points to self tried to put like a three sixteenths roll pin through I think two hundred thousandths of material in the minor diameter <laughs> right, of the right, half right. inch Acme screw. So Yeah. Yeah. And that but and that well, and the thing is that they, they worked many of them worked fine, but then we we encountered it one time and then and then shortly thereafter, then like another time and another time and we yeah. and we were like, nah, this this lead screw is why don't we just make it bigger? We can do better. We can just yeah. do better. And this is all kind of a, a, a part of the point of that is like walking back from where we had started, you know, which was like, we don't want to go completely Soviet. Like if we could look at some of the early, my earliest machine designs, they're always way overbuilt, like a you know, big ass three eighths plate steel frames and stuff. And as we were approaching this machine, like let's how, how small can we make it in all these various parts and then add back in where we, you know, dug too deep mm -hmm. and, the lead screw one of those, was one of those places where like, hey, we could, now's the time. Let's just, looking at the weights, we're not really saving that much by doing a half inch shaft versus a three quarter inch shaft. And if we beef that guy back up, we get rid of all these other problems and then we can make it one continuous, a unibody shaft that's machined down at the ends and, and it's it, more reliable, easier, et cetera. Right, and just, it, it removes machined parts. It removes yes. like, little things we have to receive process stock get a part id yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's right cool 
Well, I think that's that's pretty good. That's an hour and 15 in, and I think we covered a lot of ground. That was awesome. But I think it was really fun to do a deep dive on the Pushstick Mini because it's... It is such a cool machine, and it does, to your point, it does have a really nice history to it. Right. That it does, right. it does really encapsulate sort of the design philosophy we've worked with, which is like, come on, you know, we have these ideas, and as soon as someone is like, hey, you know, it would really make my life easier is one of these <laughs> right. things. Yep. Because then... Uh, Take going into the Wayback Machine, the Fifth Ave lift, the yeah. four post lift for the Fifth Avenue Theaters. Uh, Mamma Mia. I was going to say, are we past the NDA on that from <laughs> 2017 now? Uh, but from their Mamma Mia production, has taught us a lot about some other lift concepts, both ones that we have done and that we may potentially do in the future. Right. Uh, and so, again, as soon as we have the opportunity, we learn so much once we get to do one. Sort right of in anger, as we say. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's a good story arc, and it's uh, it's a fun thing to kind of revisit and reflect on. So cool, man. Well, thanks for sitting down with me and doing this. No problem. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you guys next time.